If you have your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel of John. Let me back up a little bit and first say, um, again, what a privilege it was to have our brother in the Lord, Theo Mwanza, speak last Sunday. Pastor Theo, thank you. You look good. You look good. I did. Someone sent me a message this week. And they were like, they were out of town and they're like, I'm, I'm, I'm catching up on the message this week. And they took a screenshot of you preaching. And I wrote back, amen, amen, amen. <laughs> and they laughed. So, um, thank you. Thank you for bringing God's word. Thank you for being diligent. Um, I love what he said last week. And, and I think that this is something that, that everyone needs to understand. He talked about the burden and the weight that is bore as you pre- prepare for a time that you're going to speak to the church on behalf of what God's word says. And there is a weight to that. Years ago, when I first started speaking, I remember how awe-inspiring it was and how overwhelming it was to say, I have to stand in front of people, open up the Bible, and talk to them about what I believe God is saying through his word. No thanks. That is incredibly weighty responsibility to do. And to hear you say that again last week just reminded me just of the weight of that. So when, when we share and we speak, I have no, no problem in saying that sometimes there are things we put together and we share and it just clicks and it just flows. And those are wonderful weeks when that happens. And there are things God has planted deep in our heart that just have to come out. And then there are other weeks that things just come out. Um, and I don't mean like unfiltered. I mean like they, the job is done for the week. And it may not be the best one that you thought that you were ever, ever able to do. And if you don't understand what I'm meaning, go talk to anyone that's been a pastor for a period of time. They'll tell you there are some weeks that they're just saying, God, thank you for giving me that. And then there are others that say, the word of God was preached that day. Let's move on. Um, because they don't know. But here's what I want to, hear, here's what I want to tell you. Um, the power is not in the messenger. It's not in the ability of the messenger to speak It's not in the ability of the messenger to eloquently weave the words. There is a skill that is needed that can be refined. And there are different people at different levels that can do that in very, very different ways. But the power of God's word is in God's word. That is true. That's why when you look at the New Testament and you look at the leaders in the scriptures and you look at the church in the New Testament, you don't see eloquent teachers over and over again, refining and studying. And this has nothing to do with why we shouldn't be students of the word. I mean, people swing this pendulum and they talk about, you know, let's be all into the Holy Spirit and everything and, and not prepare and, and let's just do that. That's silly. That's silly. And the Bible's very clear about why we need to be prepared and we need to be studied. But the truth of the matter is you do what you can in your strength and then you leave space for God's spirit to do what he wants to do. That's the way it works. Because if God's spirit's not moving in our midst, church, all this is is a talk. It's just a dialogue. It's just a a, a monologue, basically. It's not a dialogue. Dialogue's two-way. This is just a monologue and a lecture. And I don't want to be a part of a church or in a church where we're just having lectures on Sunday morning. Does that make sense? Because if God's word's not changing us and transforming us, then we're doing something wrong. So I'm saying that to you this morning as a prep, because this is going to be one of the worst messages I've ever spoken in the history of my life. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Hopefully what I'm going to speak to you this morning is simple. Hopefully what I'm going to speak to you speaks to your heart. And hopefully it makes sense. As I was reflecting this week, and I had a lot of time to reflect this week, um, 
I started thinking about life and I started thinking about the fact that there are a lot of bombs that get dropped in your life over the course of your life. Now, some of you have lived much longer than I have and others of you have not. But I'm willing to bet that regardless of whether you're young or you're old, you could give testimonies to the fact that life has dropped its share of bombs on you. And obviously this is a figure of speech, but I'm talking about hardships. I'm talking about disappointments. I'm talking about loss. I'm talking about difficulties, right? Are we on the same page? There are things that we walk through in our lives that are some of the things are within our control where we're the ones dropping the bombs on ourselves, but there's just plenty of opportunity for things to get dropped on us that we didn't plan for, that we didn't expect, and the disappointment factor and the discouragement can be strong and can be difficult for us to navigate. And, and I'm not even going to begin to try to create a laundry list of what those things are. I think if I just talk about bombs being dropped in our lives and disappointments, struggles and hurts, we all have definitions of what that looks like in our minds today. I want to speak to you this morning about why this is important and what Jesus had to say about this. Okay, in John chapter 16, verse 33, and you don't have to turn there with me, but if you want to, you can. I only have one scripture for you. He said this, and some of you maybe have heard this. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have what? Peace. In this world you will have, say it with me, trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus made a very definitive statement in the Gospels, and he said, I've told you all these things, and he's referring to things over the last couple chapters, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But he said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Even though I've come so that you have peace, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let me back up first and say, Jesus is telling us the main reason he came to this world was peace. The scriptures declare that. He is called what? The prince of peace peace, right? In Isaiah, the reason that he came was peace. Now, he doesn't remove all the trouble, but he makes a statement to his disciples that he has overcome the world. He acknowledges the fact that he came to bring peace. He acknowledges the fact that there are problems in this world. He acknowledges the fact that he has overcome them. That's what he's saying. So, if this is true, and maybe you have thought about this, or maybe you know people that have thought about this, If this is still true, and he has overcome the world, okay? I'm not talking about the people that think that everything goes away and is beautiful when Jesus comes into your life, because he even speaks to that and says, that ain't happening, okay? But he does say he overcame the world. He has overcome the world. If this is true, maybe you have thought this, or maybe you know someone who has, why do Christians still struggle with life? If you're a follower of Jesus, why is life just sometimes hard? Maybe more than sometimes hard. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're saying, I've put my faith in Christ, but man, I just feel like another bomb. I feel like another bomb. I feel like things continue, continue, and the struggle is real, and the struggle never ends. Why do we walk through such pain and sorrow and disappointment and loss? And I don't just mean experience it. Jesus talks about that we're going to experience it, but that we continue to deal with it, even if we are followers of Christ. Sometimes it seems like the Christian can stand on this statement. Jesus has overcome the world. We're supposed to be overcomers, but their lives don't seem much better or much more peaceful than anybody else. Maybe that's been your experience. Maybe you've witnessed others, or maybe you've been actually the one. What's the deal with the statement? 
If Jesus has overcome the world, why does it seem so often, many times it seems, that Christians don't feel or look or act a whole lot different than the world? And maybe those are just elements of our time or our lives, not the whole time. But what is the deal with the statement? I think there's an error in the way that people interpret this. And here's what I think it means. Here's what the error is. I think people believe when they hear something like this, that they believe Jesus replaced sorrow of the world with peace. Because he came, he replaced the sorrow with peace. I don't think that's true. I think the truth is that Jesus offers peace in the world. I'm sorry, Jesus offers peace in the midst of a world of sorrow. I think people think when you're a Christian, he just does the exchange and says, you had sorrow, now there's peace. The world's going to be messed up around you, and there was sorrow, but now there's peace. That's not what I think that he's actually saying here. I think what he's actually teaching us and encouraging us is to say, I am offering something to you now that you were not privileged to receive before. Before, there was only sorrow, and you had no choice. Now, with Christ being here, he came to bring peace. He creates an opportunity and offers peace in the midst of sorrow, where no longer do we have to hook our caboose to just the train of sorrow, but we can choose to release ourselves of that and say, there is another option that we can connect ourselves with, and his name is Jesus, who has overcome the world. And though there is still pain and there is still sorrow in the world, we can experience true peace through it all. That's what I think is going on here. And I think this is important to differentiate one versus the other because an incorrect understanding of this is one of the main reasons I think people who once aligned themselves with Jesus and don't or have left the church have chosen to disown God or Christianity because they've believed that following this Jesus and becoming this this saved person eliminates the pain and the sorrow of the world. All it does is create an opportunity for us to find peace. It doesn't make all of the stuff go away. You can experience peace in the midst of difficult things. Do you know that this morning? Have you experienced that this morning? In the midst of the storms. Scripture is very clear. Use the storing, using storms as an illustration. But in the midst of storms, in the midst of struggles, in the midst of questions that we just get fed up and sick and tired of thinking of, we can still experience peace in the midst of all of that. That's the kind of peace Jesus is talking about. That there's this beacon of hope in the middle of a dark world. That there's light that comes from the ends of the surface or wherever we're looking at. And that light that we focus on can never be extinguished by the darkness around us. It doesn't mean the darkness is gone. It just means there's a beacon of hope for us to focus on. You with me so far? It's just important for us to talk about it. And I'm sharing, you with this, sharing this with you this morning um, for a few reasons. Um, one, to talk about it individually for us today, but I want to talk about it and how it relates to what we're getting ready to do this week here at Bridge through Leap. So if Jesus has overcome the world, why do I continue to struggle with blank? It's a valid question. It's something that we need to answer. And and here's what I think is beautiful is um, he actually answers it very clearly a few chapters before this. And he gives us a solution that if we apply what he teaches 
does help us experience the type of peace that he speaks of in John 16. So let me give you a little bit of background. I'm going to jump back prior to chapter 13. And in chapter 13, prior to chapter 13, I want you to know that Jesus walked with the disciples for over three years at this point in the Gospel of John. He was in relationship with them for over three years. He called each one of them by name. He walked with them. He instructed them. They saw him perform miracles. He fed thousands of people with no food. He raised people from the dead. The list goes on and on, the things that happened. After three years with Jesus, they saw him as the fulfillment of the prophecy that he would come and he would be the anointed one or the Messiah. And he was getting everyone's attention. And they always looked at this through the physical lens. They always thought the Messiah was going to be the one to take over and rule Israel and relieve them from their oppressors. He was going to become the new king. He was going to become the new leader, the new ruler. And Jesus, as he continued to focus on the spiritual, had to keep telling them to stop focusing on the physical. They wanted him to do it here in the physical, and he kept saying, get your eyes off the physical, let's get back to the eternal. So this is what was happening over and over and over again. He called them by name. He exposed them to teaching, miracles, fulfillments of prophecies. Everyone is getting attention, and the momentum is building. The momentum is building. You know what I'm saying? Like the the tension, the excitement is getting bigger and bigger. He's getting closer to fulfilling what it was that he was going to fulfill. And then when we get to chapter 13, chapter 13 turns a corner, and it begins what many of us would be familiar with, the Last Supper. And the Last Supper... I would almost call it, instead of calling it the Last Supper, I'd call it like the Big Bomb. (laughs) Because people interpret the Last Supper as like this long table and there's all this silence and quiet and everyone just kind of like, you know, swaying back and forth, singing Kumbaya or whatever they're doing. And Jesus is passing, you know, bread and dipping and and all this beautiful stuff is happening. I don't believe the Last Supper looked like that at all. Aside from the fact that you see that John says that he literally leaned against the breast of Jesus, which I think is a beautiful demonstration of his love for the, for the Father and for the Savior, I think the Last Supper included some significant bombs for the disciples that they did not know what to deal with. In the first 17 verses of John chapter 13, we see a beautiful example of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. He washes their feet He was their teacher. Teachers don't wash the feet of their students. In that culture, foot washing was reserved for the lowest of the servants within the home. So the king that was going to be their ruler and their king puts them all on notice, flips their world upside down, basically lines them up and takes their dirty, stinky feet and he washes them with his own hands. That was a bomb that would have been dropped on them this morning. Some of us don't understand the gravity of that, but let me tell you what right now. If we started a foot washing service in church right now, and I had a seat here, and you all had to come up one at a time, and I had to wash your feet, I mean, some of you would leave before you ever got up here. Some of you are like, no way, you're touching my feet. And it has nothing to do with, like, who's the master, who's the servant. You're just going, that's creepy. You're not touching my feet. I'm not doing that. It would make you so uncomfortable. Imagine what it would be like to walk three years with your teacher, your master, who in that culture, all you saw were the servants that were not even recognized with little identity being the ones that did the job, and yet he then chose to do that. It was incredibly humbling, and it was a bomb. He washed their feet. They were confused. 
in verses 18 through 30, he says something during this last supper and drops another bomb on them. He tells them one of them is going to betray him. Can you imagine? One of you that you've walked with me for the last three plus years is going to betray me. If that wasn't bad enough, in fact, I won't read this, but they were so upset about it, they actually leaned over to John and they said, ask him who it's going to be, basically. And John leans over to him and says, who is this going to be? And Jesus, I was thinking about this this week, I'm like how there was commotion going on. And he said, the one that I give the bread to after I dip it in the cup or in the bowl is the one who will betray me. And he hands it to Judas and he goes, go do what you're going to do, but do it swiftly. So this is all happening quietly and they don't all know what's going on because they think Judas leaves because he has some financial business to take care of. I'm telling you all this because Jesus makes a statement, creates commotion, drops a bomb, and then the world continues to go on. So he drops a bomb by washing their feet. What is he doing? He's a leader. He's not a servant. In 18 to 30, he drops a bomb and he says, oh, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. In verse 33, then he tells them this. He goes, oh, and by the way, I'm leaving. What? I'm leaving. And I'm going to be with you a little longer, but you can't come with me. Another bomb. He tells them in verse 34, a new command he gives them. He says, while I'm gone, I want you to love one another just like I loved you. Now, you might think you'd be a better than one of the disciples, but after three years of walking with Jesus and watching the way he loved each other, there's no way I would think I'd still have the capacity to love others the way that he loved me. That would be another bomb in my mind. And then finally, in verse 38, Peter is so intense and intentional on showing Jesus his love for him, and he speaks to him with such expressiveness that Jesus responds to him in verse 38 says, Peter, before tomorrow, you're going to disown me three times. Another bomb. So I'm sharing this with you this morning because the bombs that these disciples are dealing with may not include people that are close in their family that died, may not include the loss of a job, may not include the disappointment of a marriage that's struggling or a financial struggle that you're going through or a child that needs some type of medical intervention or care. My point is that the world is full of bombs. And Jesus shows us through this experience, John writes about it and says all of these disciples are dealing with major bombs that are blowing up in their life in this moment. And how in the world are they supposed to navigate this? Three chapters later, he says, oh, by the way, I came that you'll have peace and I'm going to overcome the world. How does that work? How do the two things go together? In chapter 14, he tells them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He says to them, there's many rooms. I'm going to go. I'm going to come back for you. I'll take you there. And then he says, oh, by the way, you already know how to get there. And Thomas, God will love Thomas, this guy. Verse 5, he says, Lord, we don't even know where you're going, so how do we know the way? I don't feel that he said that in a way that was positive. I bet he said that in a way that was, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about? All these bad things just happen. You're going to disown me. Someone's going to betray you. Oh, by the way, let me wash your feet. What are you talking about? I'm not going to let you wash my feet. I'm leaving. It's a good thing that I'm going to leave. 
I'm preparing a place for you. You can't come with me, but you know how to get there. So it doesn't make sense to me that Thomas would have said, God, just tell us where to go. I'm pretty sure that Thomas was disappointed, confused. And he said, we don't even know where you're going. How would we even know the way? And then Jesus says something after all these lines, these bombs are dropped on how the disciples can respond to what he said and how I believe they can experience true peace. He says this in John 14, 6. His answer to them is one of the most famous quoted scriptures in the Gospels. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I have read this scripture for most of my life. Most of the time I have read this scripture, I have looked at it through the lens of an apologetic discourse or something that I would use if I chose to, to prove to someone else who Jesus said he was from the perspective of salvation. Well, Jesus was a good man, but Paul, he wasn't God. And there's other ways to get to God except through Jesus. Well, Jesus said specifically in John 14, 6, there isn't. So we're either going to believe what Jesus says or we're not going to believe what Jesus says. Like this is definitely like one of those like um, crossroads scriptures. You've got to choose at this point to either embrace what Jesus is saying or you can't embrace any of it. He can't be a partial truth teller. That would make him a liar. You know what I'm saying? Like you can't, well, he mostly tells the truth. This is one of those situations that I grew up and I heard, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is, in the Gospel of John, one of the seven ego mean statements, which just means the I am statements. He made declarations where he said, I am. Maybe you heard him say or remember him saying, I'm the bread of life. That was one of the examples. Or you heard him say, I am the light of the world. And there are other examples that he used as well. This is one, this is one of the I am statements. He's saying, I am. And the actual I am means, I am none besides me. I am none besides me. The way, I am none besides me. The truth, I am none besides me. The life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I hope you're tracking with me this morning because I'm going to go back and revisit the concept of peace Because if you're looking for the kind of peace that Jesus says he came to offer us in John 16 that I initially talked about, the pathway to peace is not a road that he invites us to travel. No, the pathway to peace is knowing Jesus. The pathway to peace is knowing Jesus. Jesus doesn't present a roadmap for people with a destination to pursue. He doesn't say, I came to give you a roadmap, and if you follow that map, you're going to find peace at the destination. No, what he gave you and I was the opportunity to pursue relationship with him. He's not the pathway to peace. Knowing him is peace. Does that make sense? There's a big difference in that, because the first way, it's just a directional shift. You know, it's like saying, well, you can go to the right or you can go to the left. Now that I'm here, I'm offering you the opportunity to go to the left. Have a great trip. No, he's saying you can continue in your path of anxiety. You can continue in your path of uncertainty. You can continue in your path path of unknowing or discouragement. Or 
you can choose to know me. And when you know me, you know peace. When you know me, you know hope. When you know me, you know confidence. In fact, he's personifying these three things in himself. He becomes the actual representation of these three things. What do I mean by that? When it says he's the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus isn't saying the way to God is a path. He's saying, no, the way to God is not a path. It's a person. The way to God is a person. If you want to know who God is, you've got to know me. If you want to be in relationship with God, you have to be in relationship with me. Let me make that really clear. When he talks about truth, he's saying truth is not information to gain. I'm not giving you more truth and understanding to gain. It's revelation that you receive through knowing me. It's not information. It's revelation. And what's the revelation? Knowing Jesus. And life, the life he talks about, is not measured by our experiences. No, but it's experiencing relationship with Jesus. True life is not by going out and making the world your oyster and having every experience you can come with. True life is by knowing the one who gave you life. That's what he's trying to say. And the invitation that I'm trying to communicate to you this morning is understanding who Jesus is. Who is Jesus to you this morning? Is he the way, the truth, and the life? What does that mean? It doesn't mean he's the roadmap to God. It means he is knowing God the ability to connect with God starts with you knowing God, knowing Jesus. It doesn't mean that he has all this truth that you can now find. It means knowing him unlocks truth in you. And it doesn't mean that you have the experiences that bring life. It means knowing Jesus brings true life. He is the pathway to peace. And the pathway to peace is in knowing Jesus. I'm, I'm trying to share this with you this morning, and, and it's, it's simple, but it could also be complicated because I don't know if it's the church or the Western church or if it's just the world that we live in. But when we look for answers sometimes in this world, I know I've looked at myself many times, I'm looking for things that can give me answers or give me confidence, or give me whatever. I'm looking for the solutions, the formulas that help me walk in a direction. There is no formula. There is no direction that Jesus points us in to say, the truth is over there. The pathway is over there. He's saying, if you want to experience knowing God, if you want to experience truth, if you want to experience life, just know me. Just know me. Like, Doesn't that sound easier, to be honest with you? Doesn't that sound easier to just know Jesus and spend my time knowing Jesus opens the door to the Father, opens the door to truth, opens the door to real life? Like, it's actually more simple in my mind when we think about it that way as opposed to saying, okay, Jesus, what are my instructions? Well, here are all the things that you need to do. Okay, now what? Okay, now here are all the things you need to learn. Okay, now what? Now here are all the places you need to go. Okay. I don't feel like I have life. I feel like I'm exhausted. What if understanding true life, what if understanding truth 
What if knowing the Father is not rooted in what we can do, but it's really rooted in who we know and how well we know him, how deeply we know him, how much time we spend committing ourselves not to do things for God, but just to spend time in relationship with him. You know how many times over the years I have talked with couples and I'm going to say, guys, I get you if this is you because one, I'm a guy and two, I understand this way that guys think. How many times you can have a conversation with a husband and a wife and the wife could say, you know, I just don't feel like, you know, that he's around or I just don't feel like I'm cared for. I just don't feel like I'm being paid attention to or I just don't feel like this and I feel like that. And the guy's sitting there like, what are you talking about? Well, pastor, I just this and I just that and that. And you know what they say? What the guy says afterwards? Here's one thing they don't say. I know my heart bleeds for you, dear. I love you and I'm always wanting to pursue you and being really. No, you know what they usually say? I work faithfully. I'm at the job every day. I'm providing for our family. I'll stop and do this and I'll pick this up for you. If we have to get this fixed, I will fix this. And this is kind of the stuff that we hear over the years in relationship. And what the guy is saying is everything I am doing for you shows me that my love for you is genuine. And yet the woman says, but I don't feel like that you're this and I don't feel like that you're this. You know, you know I don't want to sit there and go, just shut up. No, I'm just kidding. I don't say that. I don't feel that way also. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's a valid statement, guys. It's easy for the guy. I promise you I don't think that. I don't. And if you think I do, I'm not backtracking. I don't believe that. I'm just being silly this morning. All of the effort that the man is putting into that relationship to show the love, though maybe seen by the spouse, doesn't mean as much as simply as if the husband came up and said, you know, today, I just want to spend time with you. Let's talk. What do you want to talk about? I don't care. Let's talk about when you don't care. No. Let's just, let's just go out and get something to eat. Where do you want to go? I don't care. We can find a place. What would you like? Time changes things. Does it make sense? The way that you express your love for someone and the way that you care for someone has a lot to do with what you do for them or the way that you show their, your value is, is, has a lot to do with uh, the way that you give of yourself, not just with your hands and your calendar, but, but with your presence. God is not impressed. He is not impressed with the fact that I've been a pastor at Bridge for 15 years. That does not, in God's mind, demonstrate my love for him. You know what demonstrates my love for him? Not what I do on Sunday mornings. It's what I would do on Monday mornings or Tuesday mornings or late Thursday nights or Saturday evenings or walking down the road having a conversation with him or just sitting and having a conversation with him and talking with him and taking his word and planting it deep in my heart so that I can understand more of the character of God, the nature of God. What I'm trying to communicate to him is I love you so much that I want to know you by giving you my time and presence. Not by what I can do for you. He's not impressed 
with what I can do for him. And here's what I can tell you. Most of the time, when I spend my time prioritizing what I can do for God, I don't experience his peace. That's the truth. But God, I'm serving and I'm giving and I'm going and I'm doing. And and sometimes God says, that's great, Paul. Like, I appreciate the fact that you're demonstrating your faith, but I can't have that in place of time with him. We do those things as of an overflow for spending time with God. But Jesus is most interested in you knowing him and me knowing him in intimacy. And it's the presence that we give him that brings the power of peace. Our presence is what brings peace. So I share that with you this morning because when he says, I'm the way to God, no man gets to the Father through me. He's not saying, come to a church, say a prayer, check a box, and then go live your life. He's saying, if you want to know the Father, spend your time knowing me. Surrender yourself to knowing me. And what you will find in the midst of that surrender, in the midst of that laying down of your life, you will find that there is peace. That's what he's trying to show us this morning. Isn't it easier? I'm going to speak just to the guys for a moment. And I know that there, there are women that are wired like this too, the taskers in the world, because I'm, I'm more of a tasker. Um, but isn't it easier to just do things sometimes for people? Isn't it easier sometimes? What do you need? How do I, where do I go? What do you want me to drop off for you? What phone calls do you need made? Who do I, know to go, who do, who do I need to go beat up for you? Like these are the kind of things that like it's easy for us to talk about this stuff. What do you need me to do for you? And sometimes the response is, thank you so much for doing that because we need people to intervene for us and to help. That's a beautiful way of showing we care. But sometimes, and it's the harder things, people just need us not to do. They need us to be. They need us to be with with them. Be with each other. Be in relationships. Spend time together. Not just offer our services or our finances or whatever we have to give them. Sometimes people just want people. I think that there's something really powerful about this because in the world that we live in right now, we're just inundated with nonsense and noise and busyness and going and doing. And, you know, I've known so many people over the the years of the church, not just Bridge, but the bigger church. There's this whole bandwagon of people right now that are jumping on how the church of Jesus Christ is this and here's what we did wrong and here's what everyone and this is why and the conclusions that people are drawing to is because of these feelings of burnout or disenchantized feelings that they've had um, surely this whole thing can't be real but maybe it's not that it isn't real maybe it's that we're spending too much time doing and not enough time being I love what Theo did last Sunday. I didn't ask him to do it either. When he said, turn to each person here and ask them, why don't you go to prayer meeting on Tuesday night? I love that, Theo. That was awesome. It made me laugh. And I was like, whoa, look at you. You know? <laughs> I was like, wow. But, you know, there's something really powerful about that. Ask people to sign up to be a part of something that they do. And there's a better chance they'll do it. Ask them to be a part of something where they get the opportunity to be. Very few people respond to that. Because we're busy. Or because we are being in a way that is not actually bringing the kind of peace that Jesus said that we can have. 
What does it look like to be? What does it look like as people? I'm sharing this with you because our world, listen, if you don't believe this, you need to rethink your life right now. Um, but this world is not getting less peace, more peaceful. It's becoming more divisive. Our country in the next number of months is going to become more divisive. We are moving into another political realm and another political cycle in our country. Please do not jump on the bandwagon of politics and nonsense and division and everything that's going to happen that gets people angry and divisive. It doesn't mean we shouldn't love our country. It doesn't mean we shouldn't stand strong for truth and be people that are honoring to God. But listen, it doesn't matter if we're here in 2022 or if we're here in 1822 or 1222 or 22 AD. There was political unrest always in history And there always has been, and there always will be. Yet Jesus said, there is a new path for you to experience peace that the church of Jesus Christ is invited to be a part of. And you know what that invitation begins with? Knowing him. You can know him in the prison. You can know him in the valley. You can know him in the mountaintop. You can know him in your community, in your home. You can know him everywhere that you go. And in the midst of the mess that's happening around us, you can still experience genuine peace. Why? Because in knowing him, you're connected with the Father because he's the way to the Father. And in knowing him, you're connected with truth. This is where the rubber meets the road, and this is what I want to mention when you're trying to talk about connecting truth. And the same thing with life. Knowing him means that we can experience these things. How do we experience it? By surrendering ourselves to him and doing the things that he calls us to do. Ephesians 6, 13 through 15 Paul says this regarding the armor of God. And some of you have heard this scripture before. He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. And look what he describes the armor of God like. I want to specifically focus on one piece here. Stand firm, he says, then with the belt of truth around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from what? The gospel of peace. When he illustrates the weaponry and the armor we should wear, peace is linked to our shoes. Peace is linked to our shoes. Have you ever thought about that this morning? Why is peace linked to your shoes? Are these special shoes? Are these Yeezys from 2,000 years ago? Some of you are going, what's a Yeezy? Come on, man, get hip. (laughs) I'm the least hip person in this room. I shouldn't even use the word hip. There's an old adage that many of us have heard. Don't judge someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. What is that talking about? Don't make a judgment call on someone until you have experienced what they've experienced. And we're talking about the gospel of peace. We're not just talking about something to do. Jesus is peace. And what he's calling you to do is walk in his shoes. He's calling me to walk in his shoes. He's calling us as the church of Jesus Christ to know him to experience everything he's experienced so that when we know him, we get from him the way to God. We get from him truth. 
we get from him genuine life, not just physical life, but spiritual life that transforms us. And when we have that truth, we apply it to our lives. That's the piece that matters. So if you're in a place today and your marriage is struggling, how many times have you heard people say, you know, just, just follow Jesus, just, just follow Jesus. And that's fine. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean just look to him in some spiritual way. It means when he reveals truth and wisdom to you, apply it and do the things that need to be done so that your lives can change. That's why Paul talks to the church and uses the illustration and the word picture of the church being clay and God being the potter. That's why in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 11, he says this about us. He says, but we, the church, believers, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is who? From where? God, not from us. And look what he says in verse 8. Remember, we're clay. In verse 8, he says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not what? Crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. And he uses a beautiful example of that to say when we see ourselves as moldable clay, what we're saying is, Jesus, let me know you so that you can change me. And when you change me, Now I have the invitation and the opportunity to experience the Father, to experience truth, and to experience life. Our worship team is going to come here, and we're going to close in just a few minutes. And as they do this, I want to to read the lyrics to a song that they're going to sing. Um, So there's a song that we did last week, and it may have been the first time that you've heard it, but it's called I Speak Jesus. And let me read the the lyrics for you. if you have the lyrics back there, you can follow along with me as we, as we reread them. But the lyrics actually say this. The first verse says, I just want to speak the name of Jesus over every heart and every mind because I know there is peace within your presence. I speak Jesus. Let me say that again. I just want to speak the name of Jesus over every heart and every mind. Because I know there's peace within your presence. I speak Jesus. Did you catch that part? I know there's peace within your what? Presence. Verse 2 says, I just want to speak the name of Jesus till every dark addiction starts to break. Declaring there is hope and there is freedom, I speak Jesus. And then the chorus says, because your name is power, your name is healing, your name is life. Break every stronghold, shine through the shadows, burn like a fire. Verse 3 says, I just want to speak the name of Jesus over fear and all anxiety. To every soul held captive by depression, I speak Jesus. We fast forward to the bridge. It says, shout Jesus from the mountains, Jesus in the streets. Jesus in the darkness over every enemy. Jesus for my family, I speak the holy name 
of Jesus. And here's what I want to tell you about this song before we sing it. If we're not careful, we will interpret this through the lens of ultra spiritual charismatic mindset that says we can just declare Jesus in every situation and it just changes everything. I'm going to speak Jesus into your life and speak Jesus into your life and to speak Jesus into your life. And listen, there are clearly opportunities through our lives. There is power. Excuse me. There is power in the name of Jesus. The demons hate to hear the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. But what this scripture, I'm sorry, what this song is speaking of is not about churches and followers of Christ just declaring Jesus over every area of our lives. Do you know how we declare Jesus in our lives? We declare Jesus in our lives by dying to ourselves and letting him take over. When we speak Jesus into our marriages, husbands, what you're saying is, I want to learn to love my wife like Christ loved the church. That's what it means to speak Jesus into your marriage. You don't just walk into your home and say, I speak Jesus into this marriage. He's like, well, if you're going to do that, open up your heart because I need to make some changes. If there's an addiction that you struggle with, I speak Jesus into this addiction. He's not just saying, just come in and do this amazing event for a moment and speak Jesus into this. No, what we're saying is, I'm inviting you, Father. I'm inviting you, Lord, to change me from the inside out. I'm inviting you to take control. So it's not about declaring something in our lives. It's an invitation that we're giving him to do things differently in us. That's what declaring Jesus in our lives looks like. And you sing this with us this morning and we sing, I'm going to speak the name of Jesus to every dark addiction starts to break. If you struggle with addiction today in your life, you know what it looks like for you to speak Jesus into that life? It means, Lord, I'm broken, I'm a mess, and I need your help. I want to change and do things differently. And then that could mean saying no to things. It might mean throwing things away in your house. It might mean calling someone for accountability or going for a program to get help. Do you know what you do when you're doing that? You're speaking Jesus into your addiction. Because you're saying, I'm tired of living this way. I'm going to provide opportunity for God to do something different so that I can see God do that. That doesn't mean, this is not a formula, my friends, but we have to recognize when we speak something into our lives, it requires us to change. If I go to the doctor this week and he takes all of my results and my blood work and he says, "Um, here's the good news and here's the bad news. And I go home with that and I say, well, I want to do something different. If he tells me, Paul, I want you to start declaring and speaking health into your life. If all I do when I go home is walk around my house and say, I speak health into my life. I speak health into my life. I speak health in my life and I grab a cookie. I speak health into my life and I sit on the couch and watch TV for five hours and eat chips. I speak health into my life and I continue to take partake in the unhealthy things of my life that have caused me to have the problem that he said I have. That will do absolutely nothing. But if I go home and I say, I speak health into my life, I'm cleaning out my cabinets and I'm throwing away all the junk. I speak health into my life and I'm putting an exercise plan in place three to five days a week 
for 15 to 20 minutes. That will speak health into my life. If, it's, if I go home and I speak health into my life and I say I'm calling a friend that will encourage me to exercise with them because I know I lack the self-discipline to do it myself, that speaks health into my life. Are you with me this morning? This is the way this works. So if people do not do this and they just go home and declare Jesus in their lives without altering anything in their lives, they're not declaring anything other than selfishness. Declaring Jesus into our life is an invitation for us to die so that he can live through us. And that's what the opportunity is. And when he lives through you guys, when he lives through us, there is peace. There is truth. There is life. Because he is the name above all names. He is the giver of all good things. He is the conqueror, the great physician, the counselor. And he will and can do everything that we ask and need for him to do. So look at the areas of your life. And as we sing this song, don't just sing the words and think about an event. Think about the invitation from Christ this morning for you to change something. So when you say with your hands lifted or your hands high and saying, I speak Jesus into these situations, ask yourself what the Savior is asking you to do differently so that you can see the realization of that in your life and experience the kind of peace that he speaks of. Father, we just come before you today and I thank you, Lord, that we can come in confidence speaking Jesus into our lives. I know your name is power. I know your name is healing. And I know your name is life. So Father, I just pray this this morning as we lift our voices and we stand and we worship, may this be a declaration from our words, Lord, but may it come from our hearts that if there's any part of us that we need to experience your peace, your transformational hope in, we speak it today by inviting you to change us, to draw us closer to you. In your name we pray.